or nothing ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. When it comes to the pillars of philosophy, aesthetics tends to be the one that gets overlooked. However, important and fascinating topics can be found under this branch, as well as some of the most embedded and unexamined biases. Today, we'll be talking about symmetry, a concept that is elegantly simple but requires deeper thinking. Hmm. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and say it now. I think that at some point in the future, we're going to do a symmetry too before we even start <laughs> Well, that, that just makes sense because then we'll have a balance. <laughs> yeah, because, man, I, you and I have a, a running list of topics that we we can fall back on. Normally, we're one of us is chomping at the bit to do something each yes. week. Yes. Um, but every once in a while, we go, well, I don't have anything specific. Do you? Nah, let's look at the list. So yeah. to, this week, we looked at the list. and. Uh, I was like, huh, symmetry, that's kind of an interesting one. I, I just picked it. Then I started doing the research. And man, like, I, symmetry might be one of the, the deepest topics. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a qualitative sense necessarily, because obviously there's topics like God or time or reality that, you know, that are, are very deep. But quantitatively, the way that the word symmetry is applied Mm-hmm. across sciences, you know, all the, you know, music, art, uh, you know, social sciences. You yeah. know, it's ubiquitous. It is ubiquitous. It's yeah. just a gigantic topic. So I think that um, we're going to look at some very broad questions today that will probably take us a long time to, to talk about back and forth. And then in the future, um, I'm guessing we'll either do a second episode or we might even talk about symmetry in a specific topic um, or several specific topics at some point. I'm glad we're approaching it this way because I'd rather put on the ice skates (laughs) and zip over the and trip and (laughs) and crash and not break the ice uh, entirely. And and then, yeah, choose, choose something because it is when you, when you suggested it. Okay. Yeah. And I went to aesthetics first. Hmm. But then I, okay, but I need to recheck the, the etymology of this and so on, as we always do. And, and then, then physics appears, and oh my gosh, the word has changed so much. Yeah. Well, the concept has changed so much. Yeah. And even um, like the intro that I wrote, I wrote the intro, you know, before I started doing some of the research, because this was just a crazy week for me between um, yeah. school and work. And then I, I had a, a podcast yesterday um, with Dr. Fujian Zhang that I was preparing for. And so I was, I was pressed for time. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to write the intro and then I'll, I'll get over to doing the research and writing the questions later. So the intro is very heavily based on aesthetics. But I don't even know if that's necessarily going to be the biggest part of the conversation. Oh <laughs> There's so much to <laughs> symmetry that it's, we'll see where it takes us. But yeah. um, you mentioned the etymology. What, what is Symmetry. How has that sort of progressed? Well, it's originally in in the most ancient languages. It is um, if you take the two parts, it means together measure. Sin, S Y N, and metron, and that becomes by the fifteen hundreds a harmonic arrangement. Hmm. So together measure to a harmonic arrangement, just, just that much is interesting. And yeah. that's only that's only from one etymological source. Uh, if you go to 
some of the uh, others and started looking at what Aristotle and the pre-Socratics were talking about, it's uh, a correspondence of parts. Hmm. Now, that's not so far from where the physics goes. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of drawing all the uh, pins with strings. Yeah, yeah. Out here. Uh, but the idea of harmony, the idea of, of things that no matter how you look at them, you're going to be able to see the same thing, even if it's it's opposite. Mm-hmm. And but but it began mostly as a as an aesthetic notion, and then started to be picked up in in you know, we said many 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 times. All the sciences emerge out of the cauldron of philosophy. Everything does, and so it didn't take long for symmetry of, about how the world looks, about how things that you break open and look at. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the stone now. They're, they're, oh, like a geode? Or, a geode, yeah. yeah. And, and so it starts with that harmonic idea. Yeah, it's, um, that etymological evolution is really interesting because together measure, you can sort of imagine that um, that might have originated in carpentry, right? Like if you're trying to build a table and you wanted to make sure the legs were equal length, yeah. Yep. Um, you might measure the two pieces of wood together and then might even cut them together in order to ensure that you had equal lengths so that the table would be even or something like that. That you know, this is pure speculation, but you could see how that sort of term um, together measure would mean, you know, you'd have this very physical sort of uh, representation to it. And also with. The other interpretation was with measure. Hmm. Which is equally, yeah, is like, and, and does certainly bring up carpentry. And uh, I, I like that you've gone there. I think that, that because there's a utility, but usually, usually symmetry is not talked about in primarily in terms of utility, right? And especially, like you said, with that that second leap to and a, what was it a harmonious, harmonious uh, whole, uh, a harmonic presentation a harmonic presentation so that one is interesting because yeah, i mean there you're looking at you could be talking about social harmony you could be talking about musical harmony like harmony do you know the etymology of harmony offhand i don't i'm but curious I'll, about I, that I, I will i will look it up while we're while we're talking away here yeah because i harmony is um is a word that that's another word that we use in uh, a lot of different ways to mean a lot of different oh, things here so, we go all right so it's it's greek Harmos means joint. Latin harmonia means joining and concord. So, so a joint, joint whole. A joining. A joint whole. A joint whole. So separate pieces that are brought together to, to be one thing. And concord suggests balance. Mm. It suggests uh, amity, friendship, or nonviolence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that, that makes sense. And it's, it's funny that... This is already connecting to the conversation I had less than, you know, 18 hours ago with, with Dr. Fujian Zhang talking mm-hmm. about dualities, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of um, almost like yin and yang, right? Um, you have these things that sometimes they're opposites. Um, sometimes they're not opposites, but they're just separated. Um, but it's our, our brain's way of characterizing these things as being separate or being opposites um, that sort of affects our reality and of course mm-hmm. you and i have talked about heraclitus not stepping in the same river or the ship of theseus 
you know, this continuity versus discontinuity um, sort of concept and trying to determine if these categories that we we talk about actually exist in reality. So that's what we were talking about yesterday in this idea of dualities. Symmetry, I mean, we're we're thinking about in some ways uh, the same thing. Maybe not so much in biological symmetry. In that in that case, it's obvious that the joint whole is is one thing. Mm-hmm. But in some of the other things that we'll we'll talk about as the show goes on, in, in physics or in um, in some of these other things, when you think about the joint whole, you go, well, is that categorization of what we're examining true, or is that just a conceptual tool that we use to help our human brains understand what's going it's on? It's also a metaphor. So yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. So has symmetry been talked about philosophically or are we sort of off on our own here? Been talked about philosophically, uh, actually investigating it. Um, it's interesting. It's been talked about philosophically, but again, primarily from the aesthetic uh, root back in the old times. <laughs> um, and it never went away from that. But once science, I would, once science kicks in, what's physics really kicks in? But any kind of technological, I mean, part of mechanistic theory, part of machine building has symmetry built in. It's, mm-hmm. uh, we, we were just talking about carpentry. Would you, why, why do we want? Joints that are of equal size. Well, there there are specific utilitarian points of utility for that, as well as that it looks better than let's say you have one piece and then uh, one inch below it the next piece, but then two inches below that the next prong or or finger or whatever the term would be. It's it's a lattice that and a lattice is is symmetrical, right? And so when science kicks in and you start to work out this, we're working on physics and, and then metaphysics and, and, um, but you can use microscopes and start to go down to the crystalline nature of things. And we look at crystals. We look at snowflakes. We, before you could look at a snowflake really closely, you didn't know that every snowflake was unique and every snowflake is symmetrical. Yeah. But once you find that out and you realize, okay, so science profoundly Foundationalizes the uh, the evidence of symmetry, then it, it becomes much not not the sole purview of science, but then I think science and the arts are in a push me pull you kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna, definitely going to get into this in more detail as we go on. But I've I've ex- experienced this recently at work. I'm in engineering, right? Um, design philosophy right we um we make a product for a much larger company um so we make it and they make it we're a contract um manufacturer for them um so they wanted to create new molds for this part right and um our engineer and their engineers going back and forth about what the design of the mold should be right and um their engineer wanted a a three cavity mold and our engineer was pushing for a two cavity and um, the big sticking point was their engineer wanted three cavity because it would increase productivity. And in the same, you know, in, in just a slightly expanded amount of time, you could make 
um, an extra part, right? So you're, you're, it's more cost effective. Our engineer wanted two um, because he's been doing this for 43 years. And he said that he's never seen a mold with an odd number of cavitation work properly. Mm. Mm. The way that the material flows, the way that things work, you know, he said, you know, the less space that you have to get symmetrical from the injection point, the smaller the surface area, the more likely you are to succeed. So, you know, even though a three cavity, it's an odd number, but it, it is symmetrical because that third part will be in the center. Yeah. The surface area of that part being in the center where the material flows in, the likelihood of getting all of that surface area perfectly symmetrical so that the rubber will float in both of the other cavities evenly is very difficult. Whereas if you just have the inject point come down and then two tubes go to either side, it's much easier, easier to measure that and make sure that the diameters of those holes are even in order to fill out the parts properly. So you had, you had that. So in the discussion mixed in is uh, experiential learning, um, histor uh, history of proven success, a viewpoint of a veteran engineer uh, coming up against a viewpoint of probably younger engineers with yeah. different ideas. And so what a, what a fascinating conversation. And of course, over under the overarching <clears throat> umbrella of capitalism and, and productivity. <laughs> and um, long story short, we ended up going with the two cavity mold. Our, our engineer ended up reviewing some of the plans and, and discovering um, many other things that had been overlooked and that needed, needed to be done. Well, you know, if we get a three cavity mold, suddenly it becomes too heavy for the shuttle system to move the plate out. Suddenly it becomes too heavy for the forklifts to pick up. Suddenly, so there was other things that led to the led to the ultimate conclusion. But um, yeah, it's just interesting. Um, it was interesting to see those discussions start at the the very beginning level before any steel had been purchased or before any tool had touched a die to see. Um, this sort of debate over why, which direction should we go and why? What's, what's also interesting to me is that a large company defaulted to the, the argument uh, based on logic, rationality, and experience of a smaller company. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's really, that's sort of been our, the story of our relationship with them is they have been, um, very quick to acquiesce to some of our suggestions, which is very rare because we work with a lot of big companies and uh, that's not the norm. <laughs> so what kinds of symmetries are there? What are some different types of symmetries? All right. Well, let's, let's start with what we've already said and, and, and move out. So there's aesthetic symmetry, which can be subcategorized. <laughs> let's be Western. <laughs> um, Musical theory, uh, symmetry, uh, visual arts, symmetry, and, and then further broken down to the visual arts, uh, would be including representations of the human face, let's say, or the human body. Okay. Then we have anatomical symmetry, which is science, and all the subcategories that that, that would involve with, with the human body. Is broad strokes here, and then we have physics symmetry, and there were four, four kinds of one of which I admittedly can't can't even begin to say that that I understand, and I would be a, a fraud if I did, and I don't 
I don't want to be a fraud. That would never be fun for me. Um, but there's reflectional symmetry. There's, uh, um, well, I've lost the term, but side-to-side -side symmetry. So if you, reflectional would be if you looked at it in the mirror and you and the parts go together. So that'd be side-to-side. -side. There's, there's uh, a kind of a holistic symmetry where if you take a part from one half of something, put in the other half, transfer parts, it's still going to look exactly alike. Mm. Um, that's a start. Yeah. Yeah, and if the listeners are having a hard time conceptualizing that, that second one, just picture if, if you drew a line down the middle of your body, if you took your, your left nostril and put it on the right side <clears> of your face <throat> ah, yeah, yeah, without, yeah. without flipping it, you'd look pretty strange, right? But that's, strange. that would still be a type of symmetry technique. It, it would. And, and then the na natural symmetry of a kind that's in geology, um, referencing the geode earlier, or butterflies. Mm. Or, yeah, and, and so there's a lot of different types of symmetry in nature. You know, with mammals, you, you mostly see that mirror symmetry. If you, if you, if you drew a line down the middle, our left half is a mirror image of the right half. Mm -hmm. um, but if you move down um, the evolutionary chain a little bit, you get to animals or, or uh, to plants or simple animals, you see a lot of rotational symmetry, which is where um, if you, you know, kind of drew a dot in the middle and then you cut pie slices off of it, each slice is, is sort of the same. You know, you yeah. could spin it around and access it. <clears throat> So that's so, and the, and then there's the mathematical with proportionate a symmetry of proportion, so that something on either side of a formula has to work. Yeah, and, and there's visual representations of that, which are fractals. And if you you ever want to see a cool video, mm -hmm. if you look up fractals online, you'll see it. Where um, so proportionally, you know, if you look at this this image, they'll zoom in, and then as you zoom in, all of a sudden you see that image pop up as a piece of the larger image and you can continue to zoom in ad infinitum and you'll continue to see that same image pop up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, which is really neat. So there's all of these different types of symmetries. Um, and again, you know, we'll, we'll try to talk about some of the scientific ones, but you know, it's, it's admittedly beyond our um, level of expertise with some of them. Does symmetry exist? <laughs> <laughs> well, do we perceive it? Do we seek it? <clears throat> Two separate questions. If we perceive it, it's <clears throat> it's there phenomenologically. If we seek it, we want to see it. <laughs> And I think both of those things go on. Yeah. If, if you look at a still shot of a butterfly, especially if the, you know, the, the, the old 19th century science pinning butterfly, but even if you don't, you're more gentle, you can see this, then there is a, a mirror relation between the two parts. If you, if you draw an imaginary line down through the human form, a standard human form seems to have a symmetry. But it's called, of course, illusional because even though, I mean, there, there's a thing called the golden mean mm. or, or the golden radius. And recently, <laughs> all of the James Bond actors' images of dead and living were 
were uploaded into this algorithm that was looking for the face that was the most precisely symmetrical and therefore the most handsome. Turns out it was Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> um, then, interestingly, Daniel Craig, uh, and then it goes on down down the list. But we, but the people who presented this this uh, rather humorous, funny study under underlying it is the the depth of the question you just asked. Because, of course, if you look closely at anyone's face, the eye is not exactly. Mm -hmm exactly the same size and there's a little bit of offness in the eyebrow and and as you say nostrils and everything the more wrinkles maybe on one side of the face than the other as we age so it's not a perfect symmetry yeah yeah i've seen um a couple of videos of this online um where they yeah they take actors faces and then they they'll photoshop them to be to fit the golden mm -hmm. uh ratio essentially and um, it it is interesting to see it to see it happen, and it but, puts you back in the uncanny valley just a little bit. Yeah, because we, we know there isn't perfection, right? And then some of these people, um, you know, it's you have to distort their faces so much that you would think, well, if this is the idea of a perfect face, then this then this person must be ugly based upon how much editing you had to do. But they're not. Yeah. So there's a lot more that goes into. I think aesthetic beauty than symmetry. I think the funniest example of this is Harrison Ford. I think there's a, there's a meme that goes around that says Harrison Ford is the only person on earth who can smile at you with one side of his face and frown at you with yeah. the other side. <laughs> and you, you know, just the way his eyes are and his mouth are, you know, it's, it's very asymmetrical. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this idea, right. And this is, this is sort of the root at what we always get down to. If we ask, right, does symmetry exist? It's sort of a multi-level question. Um, if we look, think about it just aesthetically, I think that that's our best chance of saying, yes, it does exist, right? Because all those examples that you mentioned are perfectly um, relevant and accurate examples of phenomenologically um, establishing symmetry. Now, you, you can pick those apart, right? Like you said. Um, you know, where do we draw the line on what is symmetrical? Because, you know, at the barest level, we could say, well, you know, I have an eye on each side of my face. That's, that's, so I'm symmetrical, right? Rough symmetry. Yeah. 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 But then, you know, as you get closer, you go, well, no, your eyes should be the same size, the same shape, the same distance from the sagittal plane, the same color, the same, you know, so you know, how close can you get? And you can see that if you continue down a, a sort of reductionist route, you could say, well, you get to a point where no, there is, there really isn't any symmetry, right? Because I mean, you could get down to the, well, there's technically more rod cells or more cone cells in one eye than the other. So they're not yeah. symmetrical, right? right? Right. On that level. <laughs> so I think that that would be the easiest level at which to establish that symmetry exists would be the, the and, and the level. quantum level. And this isn't a plug for an upcoming movie, but just, <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the quantum level, it's where it all falls apart. It's why, it's why this disjointedness in this ongoing quest to find a theory of everything doesn't work because on a grand scale, there's, there seems to be all kinds of 
perceptual symmetry. But when you work down to the quantum, it's chaos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is where the conversation gets really interesting, right? Because <laughs> it's this idea of supersymmetry in physics, right? And this idea basically says, okay, well, what we know about the universe, um, we've categorized, right? And we've reduced to yeah. the periodic table. We can look at the periodic table and say, okay, um, you know, we can't explain dark energy or dark matter, but you know what? We know about 5% of everything in the universe. This is what it boils down to, this periodic table. Mm. Well, that bugs scientists, right? They don't like not knowing stuff. So <laughs> you go, okay, well, we got to figure out what that other 95% of stuff is. Well, and like you said, we look around the universe and we see symmetry. So they say, well, maybe dark matter is, is it's just a mirror version of the periodic table. There's just, there's heavier elements that directly correlate with the, the elements that we currently know on the periodic table. They call that supersymmetry. Um, and so they have, you know, they developed certain particle collider in part to explore this theory. And they said, okay, well, if we can get high enough energy densities and we can smash particles enough, uh, smash particles together at great enough velocities, maybe we can see some of these super heavy, super symmetrical particles merge. But when they started smashing them together, what they found is um, that the heavier particles they were finding did not correlate to the, the periodic table. Mm -hmm. So as it stands, there really isn't any evidence to support supersymmetry. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence that sort of points to the fact that that's not how the universe works. The universe likes to poke at such theories, and it's important to have the theories. But if you go back, if you go back to Plato, Plato... Um, in the Timaeus, one of the, the dialogues, I mean, I remember, I remember talking about this with a philosophy professor way, way back decades ago, uh, because the idea was that all natural elements fall within five polyhedral shapes. Hmm. Well, that's great. So you, so you call fire. Uh, a regular tetrahedon, Earth is the form of the cube, square, okay, but that's not quite, you know, the, the air is the form of the regular octahedron and so on and so on. And, and, and you get to the place where Kepler is saying that all in, in, in the strong astronomical terms, the whole uh, visible universe at that point, which was much less visible than now, uh, is, is, is grounded in these, these five Solids, <laughs> and then that's that. Take the reason I bring that up is because what you were just talking about before, when it all breaks down, well, we uh, symmetry can be perceived, it can be sought. When you seek it by trying to force it into a model, then you're you almost can be certain that that model is going to break apart. Yeah, and that's where. There's this sort of crisis in physics, right? And you and I, um, we just finished reading a book, you know, ex existential physics, existential physics. Uh, by Sabine Hausenfeld. Great book, and I I really like what she did with it, which was saying, you know, the book goes through and it, it essentially it's sort of a book of dispelling misbeliefs. Yeah. Um, I'm both on the side of the layperson who maybe has read a lot of popular science articles, 
as well as um, on the part of physicists who she sees as kind of overstepping um, in their <laughs> conclusions about what they actually know. <laughs> and, you know, it's a fascinating book to read. But even within that, you know, taking what she was saying, which was presenting um, what is known about physics, there's something in the back of my head, right, that's going, yeah, but even even the the stuff that we say we know doesn't add up. And she and she mentions that at a couple of points. She, she says does. there's gonna be a there's gonna be a point at some point in the future where we're going to have to come up with a theory different from the standard model of physics. So but why is that so hard? The reason that's so hard is that the 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 scientific theories we currently have, you know, quantum mechanics, relativity, um, you know, Newtonian physics. These things explain everything so well, you know. <laughs> so if you go, well, if these are if these theories are explaining ninety nine point nine 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 percent of what we can observe, then they've got to be close to being right, right? <laughs> we don't have to tear down the whole thing and rebuild it, do we? <laughs> but you know, as as she's going through and talking about stuff, it's sort of you know becoming evident that that might need to happen at some point. Yeah. And um and part of the reason for that is this lack of symmetry, right? This if you think about the, we go back to the etymology of the word, a harmonious whole. They they can't find the harmony between quantum mechanics and relativity. They can't find how these things relate to explain what we see. And um you and know, we want to and we want to believe I, this, this not I, scientists the world over would be laughing at me for my naivete in saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think we want to believe that one there has to be an all-encompassing unity. Hmm. How can because we can't accept that this can work on this level, but this works on on this level, but the but the two wouldn't work together. But I, I think of it. The um, gears or sprockets uh, toy that a, a, a little one has, and you put the different colored sprockets in order, and you turn a handle, and they all start turning each other. And that's a great way for little ones to get used to the idea of machine uh, of mechanics, right? And uh, uh, but how can we have this piece, <clears throat> and it has no way of attaching <laughs> to this other piece? Yeah, we want we want a, a, a symmetrical whole, but our theories, well grounded in evidence at the moment, um, don't allow for that. So we can't have this beautiful machine that we want to see. Yeah, so there's it's it's very paradoxical what's going on, right? Because you know you there's a lot of a there's a lot of assumptions that undergird physics such as um regarding symmetry right as like the universe which is to say okay if you look in any direction it's going to be the same yep. um and that and so scientists have built lots of theories and lots of mathematics on top of this principle that have done an excellent job explaining what we see but then evidence starts emerging that it is not the same if you look yeah. in every direction. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. looking at the yeah. cosmic microwave background or the structures of voids or galaxy clusters, they go, well, actually, 
you know, this stuff is not evenly distributed. But what happens to all of those theories and all of that science that was built on that assumption that does explain things so well? Yeah, I can't admit. Not, not, and, that, and this takes us into another thing, the branch which we haven't talked about yet in philosophy, which <clears throat> is philosophical symmetry. One level of it is the belief, is the observation or the assertion that true and false beliefs come from the same causes. Hmm. So there's a symmetry of true and false belief because of that same cause. And we've talked about things like this earlier, um, much earlier. But that that's sort of another mirror symmetry, but it's not the same thing as a mirror. And it's the kind of thing we're talking about now where scientific research leads to, to theory and it leads to claims but those claims aren't necessarily knowledge or complete knowledge. Yeah, it's it's as if all of our knowledge, all of humanity's knowledge, is verisimilitudinous, yeah. right? There's, <laughs> it's yes. not true, but it has elements of truth in it that explain what we see very well, right? And so that makes that's what makes it so difficult to say, well, let's tear the whole thing apart and rebuild it again. Well. But it just does such a good job. I'm, I'm currently learning about this in my developmental psychology class as they, um, they're covering different types of theories, right? And, um, you know, the first one is mechanistic theory, which is behavioral theories, you know, like Skinner and, um, some yeah. of these at Watson, uh, talking about how, um, essentially we live in a deterministic universe, um, and it, it boils down to initial states, um, which is what physics today still believes, right? There, yep. You take the initial conditions, you expand it out, and everything continues on the way it is. So human beings are passive, and um, basically, uh, it's either genetics, if it's nature, or it's stimulus response, if it's nurture, um, that ends up kind of guiding us through life. Um, but what psychologists found is like, okay, well, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? And so off of that, they developed organismic models um, which is uh, some of the life stage models, you know, like Piaget and Erickson and some of these other guys that say, you know, a mechanistic model is sort of, it's based on quantity, right? You have, if you have so much of something, if you add more, you get to the next level. Whereas an, an organismic model says, no, there's emergent properties when you get to new levels. So if you add up enough of these things, you don't just end up with more of those things. You actually end up with new properties emerging. Um, and I think that, you know, and then even that is an outdated model. Now they're looking at um, relational developmental systems, which um, integrates uh, aspects of your context and your, your time frame point and your interactions with other things and whatnot. But so within psychology, this idea of a mechanistic universe ha has been left in the dust for decades, right? Um, but that's still the model that physics operates <laughs> under, right? So, physics, because physics, it needs to, right? It can, this idea of emergent properties of things, novel, unique things emerging from um, something lower doesn't work. You, you have to have this particle element that, that makes it work, and that and that's where the symmetry comes in, right? I said, well, that's partly, I think, again, at, at a layperson level, what, what entanglement is about. 
Yeah. So particles, twin particles, parallel particles, no matter what part of the universe they're in, behave the same way at the same moment. Mm. Yeah, and this is, and that is not just some wacky scientific theory. They've experimentally proven this. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a couple yeah. ways you can see it. One way is in Hawking radiation where um, black holes evaporate. You know, you can create black holes on Earth and they just, they don't suck the whole Earth in. They just disappear because it, for a, as the particles pop in and out of existence, one particle will pop into existence inside the black hole. One will pop into existence outside the black hole. And so the fact that you never have mass added to it, you only have particles sort of losing it, the black hole eventually lose mass. Quantum computing, which is still in its infancy, is based on this principle of entanglement, this that you can get things to, to operate in that sort of way. So this is, this is scientifically observable, measurable, predictable. Um, so that it's it's real, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this it's it's a paradox, right? You hold your finger out in front of you, and you see two fingers because you're looking at it through two different eyes. That's basically what we're dealing with with the the physics portion of it, and then with the the social sciences or it's kind of the philosophical or humanities portion of it. Is mm-hmm. you look at these things and you go, okay, they're they're not one harmonious whole so there's not symmetry in how we understand reality which is what what keeps scientists up at night right what keeps philosophers up at night if if you even go back to the the aesthetic um ancient philosopher named Plotinus or Plotinus who said that uh, essentially that symmetry itself is not beauty. Beauty is the light that passes over the symmetrical hmm. object. Well, okay, and, and you're making me think about this, of all kinds of things, which we know from an illusionary viewpoint that physics can explain. Putting, putting a pencil in, a, in water and the pencil looks like it has bent. Yeah, and that's because of properties of light and, and and gravitation and such. But but it's there's still a kind of symmetry. Half the pencil this way, half the pencil that way, if you will. But but it's not that that the symmetry is the beautiful part or or what one is trying to achieve. It's how you see it. Hmm. That, and that's an ancient observation that still holds. Yeah, and that's that's the interest. That's an interesting part. Going back to aesthetics a little bit about it is, um, you know, we talk about how symmetry is is beauty, right? Like that's what people say. That's what the golden ratio is about. All these things, but kind of the number one rule of aesthetic art is to not create a symmetrical thing. They always mm-hmm. tell you, okay, you want to put. You know, a subject off in the corner. The rule of threes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to split your your canvas into thirds, and you want to make sure things. Are, or you look at some of the sculptures. You know, David or you know a discus thrower. These sorts of things. They're not posed in such a way that their arms are mirroring each other or their legs are mirroring each other. They're always in something that that flows a certain yes. way. So, this idea of aesthetic symmetry as being beautiful 
it almost makes you wonder if they're, you know, and like we talked about with the actors that you sort of force into this perfectly symmetrical box and it creates this uncanny kind of image. You know, you go, well, no, beauty is not symmetry. There is something more yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that is sort of a a metaphorical um, or an, an, an analogy for some of the that the bigger some symmetries that we've talked about right is this you know we want to think of the universe as being symmetrical and then we um, get surprised when the james webb telescope shows us these incredible images and, and fills us with more perplexion because, <laughs> <laughs> because now we're seeing galaxies that aren't looking the way that they're supposed to look <laughs> back toward the beginning of universal time yeah they're not the right shape blasted <laughs> and there are too many of them <laughs> and, and so our expectations are blown up but of course that just sets ethical and marvelous scientists off and okay now we got to think about this some more we got to try to how does this how does this cohere with what else we've known it's i think it's in the, the i think it's what you were getting at before it's in it's I think this holds true for us, whether science on, a, on that level, which is impossible for a layperson or unlikely, down to ordinary things. We don't, um, if we try to make all of the, what we encounter fit what we thought we knew, and that's the primary purpose, then we're missing the encounter. And the, and mm. the encounter, has to be the instructive part that says, well, maybe you need to throw a lot of this away. <laughs> maybe not all of it, but but maybe a lot of it. You know, it my my daughter-in-law is this marvelous artist, and and she works with ceramics, and and, and she has shown me that that often when you're shaping something, you're going to peel a lot of the the clay off and in fact sometimes it all just goes on to a lump and you start all over again that's where art I think informs uh, as a metaphor informs uh, good science I mean, do you, do you, you, sometimes you can rescue I know this in, in doing my own work sometimes well rescue is not the right word sometimes you have happy accidents that that lead you to what you thought you were envisioning more than the chapter and verse of what you thought your fingers were doing yeah yeah and you know um the reason we ended up in the spot that we are in in physics um is is due to symmetry right at one point they were looking at galaxies and the way that they spin and they said well wait a minute these things are not spinning the way that they should be if you if you have the gravitational center you know the center then the outside should necessarily spin slower than the the middle. Mm -hmm. But they're finding just the opposite. The outside is spinning faster, right? And that's that's really what sort of shook up the whole standard model of physics is they said, oh, that's when they had to bring dark matter in. They saw <laughs> galaxies sort of speeding away from us and they had to bring dark energy in, right? And you go, you know, I think it was... P.W. Anderson had the quote, you know, science is the study of symmetry, right? And I think that that's applicable, right? Because if you think about our scientific developments, they revolve around this, these problems of symmetry, these things where you go, 
just when you think you have it all figured out, you know, okay, yeah, we've got a good working model how the universe works. All of a sudden you, you stumble upon something and you go, oh wait, this is no longer a harmonious whole. Yeah. Now we have yeah. to, and the question is, do we keep putting patches on it? Do we keep putting on a patch so that it remains? Do we cling? Yeah. Do we cling or do we, the Edith Wharton, who's a mar marvelous, who's a marvelous writer, uh, pointed towards something like this. She said, the desire for symmetry for balance, for rhythm in form, as well as in sound, is one of the most inveterate of human instincts. It's embedded in us. Hmm. Why it's embedded in us, for me, is really the question. A composer such as John Cage will do outrageously marvelous and disturbing musical creations we we listen or experience part of those perhaps and somehow we just push away from it because that's not a symphony in the way we we think would a symphony would be and yet there's something vitally um, creative mm. going on in these things but we but we snap back to rhythm <laughs> and 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 symmetry and we look for those things when we listen to poetry or whether we realize we're looking for them or not or a good song is if you've said from time to time or it, it's everywhere but it's in us why is it in us and i think maybe that's partly what your class is yeah yeah investigating. Do, you, do you think symmetry is a, a necessary emergent property of the universe <laughs> that's a fascinating question if it is, if it is, as Wharton says, an inveterate, uh, is a, a human instinct. And I know people debate the idea of instinct all the time, but we'll just go with it also as a metaphor. It's just, what, what if it is? Does, does that mean it has a use? Well, the parts of us no longer have a use. Does that mean that that is the fundamental principle to which we must always adhere? I don't necessarily think so, but I don't necessarily think we ought to throw it away either just for the sake of throwing it away. I think we have to think about it. Why do we want this? And is that the emergent universe? What Are you asking then, does the universe tell us that we ought to be adhering to symmetry or is the universe saying, kicking us and saying, stop it? <laughs> I think that this is the interesting part, right? Is that scientists, physicists in particular, want this supersymmetry. They want they want to have this theory of everything. They want to have everything be symmetrical, right? <laughs> but if you look back, we have the evidence, we have the observations to look at the initial states of the universe. And the conclusion that they come to is that if the universe had been symmetrical, nothing would exist. If there had been a perfectly symmetrical distribution of matter and antimatter, or if there had been you know, a completely symmetrical um, explosion of the Big Bang in the in the form of the cosmic microwave background, there would be nothing. There would There'd be nothing, right? Yes. 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 These yeah. these very. If you look at it, right, matter and antimatter were almost symmetrical, but there was just <laughs> a little bit more matter, and that's why we're here. Yeah. The cosmic microwave background was almost a symmetrical explosion. But not quite. There was these tiny, almost imperceptible cold spots that led to clumping. And that clumping factor allowed 
galaxies and stars and planets to exist. So this so, is the anthropic principle that you're headed toward, right? The, yeah. So you keep you keep boiling that back, right? You, so you go you start at the Big Bang, and then you go to the galaxies and to stars and to planets and to snowflakes and to people, and you go. If we, it, it's back, it's back like what I was saying with with um, aesthetic symmetry, right? If we are to say, well, I have two arms and two legs and two eyes, I'm symmetrical then you're not necessarily wrong. But the closer you start to look, the less symmetrical things are. That's sort of reflected in the universe, right? You, you, you look and you see symmetry everywhere. But if you look into that symmetry closer, you find things that are not symmetrical. And I think that's very, and that, that is so important to social humanistic, um, emotional, psychological, the whole zeitgeist. Because we like, we, the, the way people respond to someone without a limb mm. or without many limbs or one eye or a patch on there, whatever, you know. That, and it's a struggle some people, and, the, and, the, and often the first thought is, well, that poor person, they just can't quite be as human as the rest of us. And it's an awful, awful thought. And I think, we're, I think we're making progress with that. But that's the negative for me side of this worship of symmetry. Hmm. So if someone has a limp, or, or, or you can extend that into almost anything. If someone is so intro introverted that they, they, they decide not to speak at all. That somehow that's not right. Because that that therefore betrays a bias of what is right, which is normal. And what normal is has been dictated by not common sense, but it's been, been presented as that but dictated by what people want to be normal. So that takes us back to the question you asked before, which is, is symmetry, uh, how did you put it? Is symmetry real or is it something we perceive? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. this again, um, my developmental psychology course is touching on this where they, they're talking about um, the new theories um, are, are doing what physics can't do right they're they're tearing the whole thing down and building it up again because what they're finding is that you know the statistics right the statistic when you get down to the mathematics of how our conception of human development and human normality works um these anovas and and regressions and things you are starting from the philosophical assumption that the, a, a normal human exists mm -hmm. and that if you just look at the the, a large enough sample of people um, that there will be normalcy that will emerge from that. And the new theories are saying, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Normality does not exist. Human development necessarily has to be an ideographic um, endeavor. You have to look at the individual characteristics of the person mm -hmm. in their context, in their period of history, mm -hmm. in their relationships, in their physiological development. 
every single one of these factors contributes to their behavior and their thought patterns and, and how they work. Now that creates a crisis, right? Because it necessarily limits the scope of developmental science. You know, you all of a sudden you have to rethink how you do the mathematics. You have to rethink um, how you're doing um, your, yes. your studies. And it makes ideology a whole lot harder. <laughs> you know, if you start defining normal, those that have power are, are the ones that define what normal is in any particular culture, then you can hammer away and hammer away at people and get them to espouse all kinds of things about freedom that they really don't mean. <laughs> Uh, it can be used just in vile, awful way, and is, because ideology emerges is emergent from the, the ideology requires a consistency of vision that is narrow, mm. and and we are now progressing past that in psychological science, in physics, in, but not necessarily in political culture. Yeah. All right. I think this is one of our best <laughs> conversations ever. So uh, stay tuned for um, physics part or, uh, you know, symmetry, symmetry part, two. part two, three, four, or uh, maybe aesthetic symmetry and you know, mathematical symmetry. I, I just see this spilling over into so many different things that I'm sure we're going to revisit it. But until next time.